Hi, this is Erin James Brown. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I serve as the interim site pastor at Urban Village Church, Edgewater. Urban Village Church does bold, inclusive, and relevant ministry for people who were traumatized by church, people who feel overchurched, and even the non-churched folks. If you identify with any of these signifiers, we're so glad you're listening. Would you consider helping us continue this Jesus-loving ministry in and across Chicago and over the internet? You can make a generous recurring gift by going to our website, urbanvillagechurch.org backslash give. And thanks for helping us with your ears, actions, and dollars to build up God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And now, here's the latest sermon. Morning. My name is Katie, and I have the privilege of reading our scripture this morning, which comes from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Now the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets who were, who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The company of prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water. The water was parted to the one side and to the other until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, you have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Erin James Brown. 
I am the interim site pastor here at Urban Village Church Edgewater. My pronouns are she, her, hers. You made it through the heat wave of the summer. Um, I did too. I just slept through it, but welcome. (laughs) We made it. Each week throughout the month of July, we've been opening our service or before our sermon time with um, different prayer practices. The month of July, we're using breath prayer as a way of centering our bodies and our hearts and our spirits. So I invite you to get comfortable in your space, uh, whether that's placing both feet on the floor, relaxing your shoulders, untensing and unfurrowing your brow. Some people like to pray with their eyes open, just resting and fixing on a spot. That's totally fine. Some people like to pray with their eyes closed. You can do whatever you want with your hands. Maybe they are lifted up, receiving God's grace. Or maybe they're placed down on your thighs, grounding you in God's love. But wherever you are in your breath, breathe outward. And we breathe in deeply together. And out. And we breathe in. This is the breath of life. Breathing in hope. And breathing out sorrow. Breathing in peace. And breathing out anxiety. And breathing in love. drives out all fear. God, you have called us. We have already been called. We weren't ready. We didn't want to go. You keep nagging and we keep saying, be still, be quiet. But you have already called us, prepared us for what is ahead. And so God, We offer our minds to you, our hearts to you, our bodies to you. May we follow in your direction, knowing that you go with us, just as you went with our forefathers and mothers and parents of faith. You, God, will go with us again. And so we offer ourselves to you. You are our God, and we are your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. It's not often I get to preach from 2 Kings. Is it often you hear sermons from 2 Kings? Our story this morning comes from 2 Kings, the section of the Old Testament which is tracking the rise of the kings of Israel over the people of God. And it ends, I hate to tell you, spoiler alert, with the destruction of the temple and the enslavement of the people under the Babylonians. The kings are reigning over the people and the prophet Elijah is the mentor and his mentee with a similar name, but not to be confused, Elisha, they are warning the people of their inclination to turn away from God and rely on themselves and their rulers and those systems that they have put in place that are so great, so grand. And I have to imagine a prophet's job is not super fun, constantly telling people the unpopular truth about what they're doing wrong. 
And Elijah has been doing this his whole life. He knows his role will soon end. And so as predicted in King, the first Kings 19, he goes and he places a cloak, sometimes called a mantle, across, across his predecessor, Elisha, initiating this young man into the profession of truth-telling. And then for the next several chapters, leading up to the book of 2 Kings, Elisha is being prepared to take over, prepped for his future responsibilities. And yet, in the passage we read today, Elisha seems reluctant to take up his place as leader, continually telling people who are saying, you know your leader's going to die soon. And he says, shh, be quiet. Some translate it, be still, hesitant to lose his advisor and assume authority. But Elijah, he is undeterred, maybe because he doesn't fear death, does, an aging, does the aging prophet know that he will escape the last gasping last breath because he will ascend into chariots of fire and eternal glory? If I knew that I was to leave this earth with some type of dramatic exit and a mic drop without the pain and weariness of the unknown eternity to come, maybe I would be less afraid too. But Elijah, Elijah makes his final round at the important institutional places of worship. He stops at the Jordan and at Bethel doing this farewell tour, his last uh, performances in places where God's spirit resides, remembering the power of encountering God in these places. Elijah travels with his tutelage, Elisha, and then they gather this entourage of 50 other prophets. Nearing the end of their journey, sensing the time is to come to a close, Elijah hands over his mantle. This sweeping cape, it, it kind of, he doesn't hand it over, it kind of sounds like it falls, but a sweep, he handed over in, verse, in chapter 19, a sweeping cape to shield from the cold, but also a garment of pastoral authority, kind of like Liberace wearing his cape playing. The mantle weighs on the prophet's shoulders, reminding them of the responsibility of proclaiming God's word to God's people. And this story of mantle passing, a.k.a. torch passing, resembles that symbolic gesture of Moses who parted the waters of the Red Sea with that huge staff that he smacked on a rock and then handed off to Joshua. The fiery glory we see that Elijah wraps himself up in reminds us of Jesus's ascension and the passing of the Holy Spirit onto the disciples. The ritual of advising training up others in order that they may become leaders of future generations, thus carrying forward the message of the future of God. It is a long history in our Bible. But Elisha, this young, we'll call him intern prophet, even though he's known for several chapters that his day of governance is coming, he feels unprepared resistant of his responsibilities, asks for more blessings, further inheritance of wisdom and knowledge in order to fulfill his forthcoming duties. And then I kind of wonder what happens with this 50 silent witnesses of this exchange. Do they snicker at Elijah's lack of confidence or are they sympathetic, not willing to assume the role themselves? Is everyone just in a state of denial, a stage of grief mourning over the loss of their great leader? Whatever any of them are thinking, it's clear through his hesitancy that Elisha does not feel like he has, quote unquote, arrived. 
that he does not wish to declare a thunderous yes to God's call of responsibility on his life. Instead, he's plagued with nightmares about showing up for a test and not being prepared or his teeth falling out or one of those weird uh, nightmares that we all have. In our sermon series entitled Faith on Stage, we continue to examine ancient stories of our faith in light of other works of art, mainly musicals, that seek to reinforce the biblical principles we know to be true in our own lives. And this week, as we study both the story of Elijah and Elisha, we're comparing it with, guess what? The Lion King, the live-action version, which you might have already seen this weekend three times, the Disney musical of the young if you haven't seen it. I don't know where you've been since 1994, but the young lion prince Simba is a precocious cub who lives uh, to play games and have fun. After a tragic and treacherous event, Simba's father is murdered and the rulership of the lion pride is up for grabs. Simba, fearful of the inexperience and grief-stricken by his loss, runs away from the expectations of his life to live a life of akuna matata, a chilling out, maxing, relaxing kind of life. And it isn't until Simba's childhood friend, Nala, challenges and pleads for Simba's return to assist the pride that is suffering, that this lion prince wrestles with his role, his call, the meaning of his life. Throughout the story, from cub to grown lion, Simba worries about his abilities, idolizes his father, and assumes he is unworthy and incapable. You can easily compare this story to the biblical prophet Elijah and to Simba and the two who struggle with self-doubt, confuse true ambition and humility in leadership. It's a tale as old as time, and the common themes weave themselves throughout the stories like this and many others, the classic assumption that one day you will be old enough, experienced enough, wise enough to fulfill your life's duties and goals I hate to tell you that's a myth. It plagues our human experience and one which God seeks to address to us time and time again. This is why Jesus doesn't go around preaching and performing miracles by himself, but he surrounds himself with disciples of all genders and trains them up for when he will leave, helping them feel prepared for the next generation. This is why some of our most beloved stories of triumph are about students learning lessons from masters that go from being karate kid to karate adult because we all struggle with the readiness of responsibility. We all hope we are prepared and feel never, but, and we all kind of never feel quite prepared for the task or the interview or the job at hand. Because at what point do you feel like you've arrived? Has anybody arrived? At what point do you feel your shoulders are big enough and strong enough to carry the mantle that's been entrusted to you? At what and when are you ready to navigate the uncertain road of responsibility? I'll confess, I always thought I would arrive at 28. My life would be one of seeking degrees, seeking experiences, building up my resume in order to prepare myself for pastoring, a job for guiding all of you. With each toss of a graduation cap and plaque placed on my wall, I thought I would feel more fulfilled, ready to preach the good news, unafraid and undeterred to tell the truth of God with a capital T, guided by my ambition at best 
and really wanting to prove others wrong about, the, about me and my self-centeredness at worst, I wanted to be a strong leader. And at 28, I never felt quite prepared enough. Today, I don't feel quite prepared enough. And so I often wonder if I would only read another book or attend another conference or watch another TED Talk, yet another TED Talk. I would be able to live into God's calling in my life. Not only that, everyone then around me would recognize that I am living God's calling in my life. But the truth is, the progression of leadership and the call to responsibility is not a linear path of degrees and experiences and recognition from others that can be modeled. It's actually more like that labyrinth CC was telling us about that we'll be praying through next month. There are moments of swirling, and then you come to rest in the presence of God and understand your own usefulness. I was meeting recently with a Urban Village Church Edgewater leader. I was explaining to this leader the importance of her work and service on leadership teams and trying to communicate my appreciation to her commitment to our community. This is a more mature, seasoned leader, we could say, saying, our people need to see someone like you who knows that they are loved, valued, and cared for. As a part, uh, she's been a part of our urban village since it was an urban township. She has guided us and protected us for almost 10 years of existence. She has inspired other young leaders, those younger than herself, to assume they too have a place at the table. They have a voice that needs to be shared. They have gifts to share and that they will guide the future of this Christian church. And so when meeting with her, I said, you know others look up to you, right? Like, like people want to be you someday. Did you know that about you? And she, in her wisdom, but also in her humility, chuckled and shook her head and said, you know, I'm a hot mess, right? <laughs> if they only knew, I don't have it all together. Her reflection was the reality of her lived experience going through life, not as perfect, but as perfectly relying on God's grace and guidance. But it also reminds me of the reality of our expectation of leadership, this road to responsibility and what it means to be truly ambitious for God. Her humorous reflection is a reminder that at no point, no point will you or I or anyone ever feel ready to follow God's call. We know this is true because Moses made excuses in the desert to a burning bush that he wasn't a good public speaker. Jesus prayed that a cup of death would be, and resurrection would be taken from him. Peter denied any connection to Christ, fearing a similar call and fate. Some of our greatest heroes and even our Savior do not assume they are fully prepared for the task at hand. And yet, and yet our God continues to call, continues to empower, not only individuals but communities for the readiness that is ahead. So before the mantle's weight relaxes on our shoulders, when we only feel just the burden of the future role God has already called us, prophets and preachers and proclaimers, whether we want it or not, whether you consented or not, before we have all the right words to say, God gives us the power to pull systems apart that separate God gives us the power to reunite hearts with a God who so desperately loves them. 
So we are capable before we are ready. We are equipped by a God who perfectly prepared us in our mother's wombs. It's not about being perfect or about having it all together. It's not, it is about realizing with the humility that God continues to use us. And so we want to live usefully. Living usefully doesn't mean we have two cars or in Chicago, maybe just one car. (laughs) Living usefully doesn't mean we have a certain number in our bank account. It doesn't mean that we have a certain number of friends on Facebook. True ambition of one following God is the deep desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. And that doesn't mean doing it perfectly. Living usefully is not always grand and the sweeping of the coat of many colors or the fabulous cape. Living usefully is not always smashing rocks and parting waters. Living usefully for God, living into our call and saying yes to our responsibility as God followers is often quite quiet, small, dedicated words and actions that uplift continued challenge, encouraging and training up others who suffer under the weight of perfection so that we are all proudly prancing around in our mantles. So I just want to give you a a random list, a few points you can take home, ways you can live usefully this week. Because I know if you're like me, you like a list and you want to be told, how do I be useful? Are you like that? Yes, I know. How do you live usefully? Well, it's through service of others, speaking out and speaking up for those in need, those stories that often go unheard and unread, like those protesters in Puerto Rico this week who speak out against their governor and other powers that demand self-representation that reflects their values. How do you live usefully? Well, it's through unity. It's bringing people together, people who don't have many things in common, but are commonly created by a loving God who sees each other as allies and siblings commonly created by the God who loves them. How do you live usefully? It's through the bravery of curiosity, constantly questioning things, constantly questioning the status quo, constantly being called the problem child, constantly being uh, speaking up your questions when everyone else is too fearful to say them out loud. How do you live usefully? Well, you tip like Jesus. You go to drag worship night and you tip well because Jesus would tip well because we want people to know they can come to our church. How do you live usefully? You show up because the youth in our church know that then they can come to church wearing a t-shirt that says, thanks be to God to the girl who helped me realize I wasn't straight. And they wear it proudly to church because they know you will see it and smile. They know that because you showed up just as you are and they could show up just as they are. How do you live usefully? You be humble. You know that it doesn't just rely on you, that it relies on a community coming together to work together that it ultimately relies on a God of salvation. So we live usefully for God, humbly following the instincts that God has created us, seeing us. God has gifted us with a voice and humbly relying on God's grace and those around us to pull and prod God's kingdom closer and closer into our existence. Our only responsibility is to wear our mantle, our cloak of belovedness with pride, knowing that God will use us with usefulness because we are already beloved. Will you pray with me? 
beckoning God. You moved through the lives of Elijah and Elisha. Just as you did in their lives, God, we ask that you move in ours. You, God, invite us in this unknown journey, unforeseen territory. And so we ask that you turn on our hearing aids, that we may listen for your voice, that we may live usefully speaking your prophetic world in a world that doesn't always want to hear it that we may live usefully empowered by your spirit that grants us the courage to journey, to trust, to listen, to speak. God, help us live usefully and accept your commission to be your faithful servant people. We put our trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.